0: Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. We'd love for you to join us on Sundays at 930 or 11 right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're calling this year the Year of the Bible as we read and study through the Bible cover to cover. On August 25th, we'll kick off the New Testament along with home-based small groups who will study the weekly reading together. If you'd like more information about any of this, visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. This comes from Matthew 4, 18-25. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. God, thank you for this teaching text. I pray over the message that you would use it to soften our hearts. Um, and that we would hear your words through John. Amen.
1: Amen. All right, good morning. It's good to see you. Kind of a sheepish crowd this morning, aren't we? I am really glad that you're here. I hope that you are coming in today and you're doing well, uh, that you're encouraged, that you are like flourishing in life. or Maybe you're here and you're Just beat up, you're tired, life's kicked the living daylights out of you. I don't know if you're here and you're among friends and these are your people and you're just like glad and grateful or maybe your blood pressure is up being in a church or being among total strangers. It's kind of freaky to go to a church where you feel like everybody already knows each other. I don't know if you believe the things that we believe or maybe you vehemently disagree with us, but this morning in particular, nobody's here by accident. Jesus has been the one inviting him, inviting us toward himself and toward each other. And so I want to say to each and every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, you're welcome. And I'm glad you're here. I know this is going to be a great Sunday because uh, the city of Tulsa chose this week to tear up our parking lot because not now, but as you all were driving here and deciding whether to come to church, it was raining cats and dogs like an apocalyptic storm I have been battling this intense sinus infection for the last 10 days, which is why I sound like a frog. This morning, the AC chose to go out in three of our children's classrooms, which is probably why that kid's screaming his guts out. (laughs) Our pets' heads are falling off. Everything bad is happening today, which means this is just going to be like the greatest Sunday there ever was. And you're here, and I'm really glad about that. Uh, This morning, I don't want to talk about biblical principles. Uh, I don't want to give a sermon on spirituality in general. Uh, I do not want to give a faith-based encouraging message. I do not want to have a generic conversation about religion. This morning, I want to have a conversation about Jesus. And this is the first time this year that I'm preaching a sermon from the New Testament. And I'm so excited. This morning and for the weeks to come, as we're going through the Gospels from now to the middle of October, we're going to be reading the Gospels and the story of Acts. I want us to contemplate the person of Jesus. I want us to like to meditate and to dwell on his words. I want us to join the woman with the issue of blood and press through the crowd and reach out and try to touch the hem of his garment. I want to crouch down with the disciples in the boat while there's a storm raging and see him above us speaking, peace be still over the storm. I want us to peer around a corner and see him as he rises early to go and commune in the presence of his Father. I just want us to talk about Jesus. And all this year as we've been making our journey through the year of the Bible has been leading to this moment. If you've been tracking with the Bible Project stuff, I love how they say the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Last week, if you weren't here, I hope that you'll go back and listen to the sermon. I attempted to summarize the Old Testament in 30 minutes. It took me 40 minutes. But I attempted to summarize the storyline of the Old Testament and look at some of like, the lingering questions that remain unanswered as the Old Testament comes to a close. And I hope that if you're doing the year of the Bible, you were able to read yesterday, Matthew 1 and 2, and this morning, Matthew 3 and 4, because we see from the first sentence and through the first chapters how Jesus immediately begins to answer the questions that are lingering as the Old Testament comes to a close. Jesus, from the first sentence, is presented as the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus is presented as the son of David, the son of Abraham, Jeshua, who will save his people from their sins. He's called Emmanuel, the God who is with us. At least 12 times in the first four chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is presented as explicitly fulfilling Old Testament promises given through Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, Jeremiah, Deuteronomy, and the Psalms. And Matthew, the first gospel, is this beautiful kind of bridge gospel between the Old Testament and linking it to the person of Jesus Christ. And Matthew is writing with, with a Jewish audience in mind, but also with, with an, like, people like us who have been reading the scriptures uh, beginning with the Old Testament. He's writing in mind with people who've studied the Old Testament, directing us to Jesus. <clears throat> and today we're going to focus on the call story that we've heard twice this morning. It's so rich. And we're going to focus on the call of, of the first disciples. But first, I want to give you a sense of all that has happened leading up to this moment where Jesus calls to Peter and Andrew, James and John, follow me. And so in Matthew 1.1 1, 1 begins, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and begins to list the names of people in Jesus' family tree. And this name, this name list is, is part of a broader thing that seems to be like this divine entourage that's announcing the coming of Jesus. It's like if you're in a public building or maybe you've, you've watched like C-SPAN because people love C-SPAN and, and you see like the president is about to walk into a room, you first see the secret service beginning to quietly infiltrate and you know that a person of some importance is coming. And from Matthew 1, 1, Jesus has this divine entourage that begins showing up. Jesus is listed among the names of these great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, some of these other characters with unique stories and compelling narratives, people through whom God worked mightily. We've got Rahab and Boaz and Ruth and David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, generation after generation, of this special bloodline, this called-out bloodline. And it culminates with this obscure couple that we've never heard of, a teenage girl named Mary who's betrothed to be married to Joseph. And all of this is leading to talk about their son that was to be born. Four times in the first four chapters, angels show up and are delivering messages to this couple that we've never heard of. After his birth, astrologers from the east, Gentile foreigners, have have read the skies and knew that something special was happening in Bethlehem, and they go there to worship him. John the Baptist shows up with the fire and the fury of an Old Testament prophet, and and he's threatening all the people, saying, like, like, something big is about to happen. The one who's coming after me is going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire Get ready. We've got patriarchs, we've got angels, we have the magi, we have the prophet John the Baptist coming as like the last in the line of the Old Testament prophets. And all of this divine entourage culminates at the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus, in His first public act, uh, performs an act of submission, his, his cousin, John, is like, no, you should not be baptizing me, I, 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 or I should be baptizing you. You know what I mean, the other way around. I can't get it right. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. let it be so for now. This is necessary in order to fulfill all righteousness. His first public act is an act of submission. And Jesus is baptized by his cousin, John the baptizer. As he comes out of the water, the spirit descends on him like a dove, which makes us think of the dove in the story of Noah. Noah sent out the dove, and it came back with an olive branch in its beak, signifying that after the purifying flood, there was a new creation dawning. The dove descends on Jesus as the Holy Spirit, signifying there's a new creation coming. And the voice of the Heavenly Father says, This is my Son that I love. With Him I am well pleased. And then in a dark way, the mystique and the intrigue surrounding Jesus is even further amplified when Jesus goes from this high point of public acclaim by his Father to a place of private suffering where he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil. And unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus survives the temptation. He's the new Adam in God's new creation. And at the end of the story, angels attend to him, and he returns to Galilee we think, my goodness, after all of this, the the patriarchs, the magi, Herod trying to kill kill him off, and he killed all the babies in Jerusalem two years and younger, and then the baptism, and then the temptation in the wilderness, what is he going to do next? And what he does next is he goes to a podunk town by a lake, and he preaches the same sermon that his cousin already preached. Repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near, or the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. Repent is a churchy word. Uh, Whenever I, you know, meet with like teenagers and we talk about baptism, this happened a lot at Asbury, I'd ask them about this word repentance. We don't really have a context for it outside of the church. Um, Repent, you know, you associate it with like, do a U-turn, turn around, Uh, change your behavior, feel sorry, that kind of thing. But if you look at this word repent in Greek, really woodenly it just means think differently or reconsider. Jesus says reconsider for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Reconsider your life, your values, your allegiances because there is new information that you need to know about. The kingdom of heaven, the reign of God has come near. This is Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy. He says, In Matthew's account of Jesus' deeds and words, the formulation repeatedly used is the well-known, Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. This is a call for us to reconsider how we've been approaching our life in light of the fact that we now, in the presence of Jesus, have the option of living within the surrounding movements of God's eternal purposes of taking our life into his life. In light of this new information that God's kingdom is here, in the person of Jesus Christ, reconsider everything. Willard says, in the presence of Jesus, we have the option of voluntarily living under God's rule, which means we have the option of resisting or rejecting God's rule in our lives. And it makes me think of uh, all those towns that have been occupied by Nazis and the allied forces were rolling in with these big tanks. There's a real repentance or reconsider moment when you see those tanks coming in. Reconsider your allegiance in light of the fact that we're in control now. Reconsider, repent in light of this new reality of liberation. Liberation. Jesus says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Reconsider in light of this new paradigm, this new order, because God's kingdom is breaking into our world. Jesus announces this sermon to the masses and then immediately personalizes it in the call story that we've heard this morning when he goes first to Peter and Andrew and then to James and John. Uh, Jesus goes to them, and he approaches them, and they're they're doing their work. They're fishermen. And Jesus tailors his ask based on their vocation. So first to Peter and Andrew, he says, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. I will make you fishers of men. And then Peter and Andrew and James and John also give the same response. It says that immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. Immediately, they left their nets and they followed him. In the presence of Jesus, he's staring you in the face, there's a moment of confrontation, immediately. A moment of confrontation. Right now, decide what you're going to do. In that moment, for Peter and Andrew and James and John, they just got to go with their gut. He's standing in front of you and saying, what are you going to do? Immediately, they left their nets. This was a moment of severance. Uh, In that moment, based on their gut response, they were either in or they were out. There was no ambiguous middle in this moment because he's looking you in the face and saying, what are you going to do? In the moment, they leave their nets, they leave their dad, they leave their boats, and they follow him. They've divorced themselves from their present and their past, and they're completely throwing their hopes on the future on this person that they're following, It's a redefined future. Everything they knew about what was going to come next, they surrendered when they decided to follow Him. Immediately, they left their nets and they followed them. Now, naturally, we we put ourselves in their shoes. You think, what would you do if you were in this situation? And maybe you're like me and you're inclined to think, I'm not that good on my toes or... It's not all that unreasonable to like tell dad, hey, at, at five o'clock when I get off, I'm going to go spend some time with him. I don't know if I'll be back tomorrow. Um, what would you do in this situation? You're somewhat inclined to think like maybe these are just impressive guys. These are spiritually mature dudes who were ready at the right moments. But I think that we're wrong or misled to be impressed by these guys. There was nothing that was ultimately remarkable about them. What was so remarkable in this story was him. That he was the kind of person of such personal authority that when he walks up to you and says, let's go, people just do it. I was trying to think of, like, of, a, of, a, of someone with that kind of authority in our world. The only person I could come close to thinking of was Bono. And so Ben Ben will be in here at the next service and I was thinking for Ben you know you go to a U2 show are there any really big U2 fans in here okay so you go to a U2 show and they're just magnificent and they own it and at the very end they're like let's go you go you say yes and no one thinks you're remarkable for having the courage to say yes because Bono said let's go and so you go Before there were miracles, before he's casting out demons, before he's putting the Pharisees and the Sadducees in their place, Jesus is commanding authority with his very presence by going up to these men and saying, follow me. They were not crazy for having said yes. They would have been crazy for saying no, because this is a man of authority. He called, and immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. If Bono calls you out in a crowd and you go, that's grace. Hey, that was really nice of him. He didn't have to do that. When Jesus calls the disciples, it's, this, it's an invitation of grace. But it's, but it's not a cheap invitation. It's a costly invitation. The great lie in the church today is that for us in receiving the invitation to follow Jesus, that that invitation is any less costly now than it was for them then. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, wrote a brilliant book called The Cost of Discipleship. He also wrote one called Life Together on Christian Community that I'd love for you to read. Uh, This is what Bonhoeffer said. He said, if we would follow Jesus, we must take certain definite steps. The first step, which follows his call, cuts the disciple off from his previous existence. The call to follow at once produces a new situation. That's the next one. Let's save it for a surprise. Yeah, okay. The call to follow at once produces a new situation. To stay in the old situation makes discipleship impossible. Levi must leave the tax collector's booth and Peter his nets in order to follow Jesus. One would have thought that nothing so drastic was necessary at such an early stage. Could not Jesus have invited the tax collector into some new religious experience, but leave him as he was before? He could have done so had he not been the incarnate Son of God. But since he is the Christ, he must make it clear from the start that his word is not some abstract doctrine, but the recreation of the whole life of man." I'm not talking about just some philosophical idea that you can mentally assent to and leave your life unchanged, either you're in or you're out. The only right and proper way is quite literally to go with Jesus. The call to follow Jesus implies that there is only one way of believing on Jesus Christ, and that is by leaving all and going with the incarnate Son of God. The first step, says Bonhoeffer, places the disciple in the situation where faith is now possible. Because it's not faith if if there's no risk, if there's no leap involved. He says, so long as Matthew sits at the receipt of custom and Peter at his nets, they could both pursue their trade honestly and dutifully, and they might even enjoy religious experiences, old and new. But if they want to believe in God, the only way is to follow his incarnate son. Until that day, everything had been different. They could remain in obscurity, pursuing their work as, the quiet, as uh, the quiet people in the land, observing the law and waiting for the coming of the Messiah. But now he's come and his call goes forth. Faith can no longer mean sitting and waiting. They must rise and follow him. The call of Jesus frees them from all earthly ties and binds them to Jesus Christ alone. They must burn their boats and plunge into absolute insecurity in order to learn the demand and the gift of Christ. Had Matthew stayed at his post, Jesus might have been his present help in trouble, but not the Lord of his whole life. There's a severance. In calling Peter and Andrew and James and John, later the other disciples, there was, are you in or are you out? Out. A severance from the past and embracing a new future. This, this severance from the past and this embrace of an, of an undetermined but Jesus following future is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls costly grace. And he contrasts this with most people. What he says is most people's understanding of grace, which is cheap grace. This is a long quote, but it'll be on the screen so you can follow. He says, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. Cheap grace means the justification of sin, but not the transformation of the sinner. Grace alone does everything, they say, and so everything can remain as before. Instead of following Christ, let the Christian enjoy the consolations of his grace That's what we mean by cheap grace, the grace which amounts to the justification of the sin without the transformation of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution, that means pronouncing the forgiveness of sins, without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace, however, is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. Severance, metaphors. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel, which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man or a woman their life, and it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. And above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of His Son. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it's grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. And then he concludes, says, with cheap grace, grace, the Christian life comes to mean nothing more than bourgeois responsibility, respectability. You know what I think bourgeois respectability looks like these days? Go to church occasionally, be polite, vote Republican and do whatever else you want. Bourgeois respectability. Living in the world and like the world. The upshot of it all is that my only duty as a Christian is to leave the world for an hour or so on a Sunday morning and go to church to be assured that my sins are all forgiven. I need no longer try to follow Christ for cheap grace. The bitterest foe of discipleship has freed me from that. This word of cheap grace has been the ruin of more Christians than any commandment of works. It's Bonhoeffer. The costly grace of Jesus is extended to the disciples with the invitation, follow me. To follow him is is to sever from the past. The cost is that severance. It's it's saying no to to myself. It's an unfollowing of self, of my idols, of my agenda, of my allegiances, and replacing them with a new one. The cost is the severance. But the grace is proximity to him who is life. This is Dallas Willard again. Quoting C.S. Lewis, he says, uh, as, as Lewis writes, our faith is not a matter of hearing what Christ said long ago and just trying to carry it out. Rather, the real son of God is at your side. It's proximity to him who is life. The real son of God is at your side. He's beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He's beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and thought, his zoe life into you, beginning to turn the the tin soldier into a live man. And the part of you that doesn't like it is the part of you that's still 10. In following Jesus, the disciples were being invited to discover real life. In following him, they were finding themselves, but they first had to abandon themselves, to abandon security, to abandon the predictable path, to abandon control. He said, follow me, and I'll teach you how to fish for people. And then the next thing we read in the story is it's like he turns to the disciples and he goes, watch this. He went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease, sickness among the people. News about him spread like wildfire all over Syria. People brought to him all who were ill. With various diseases, those suffering pain, the demon-possessed, those with seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region around the Jordan followed him. In a heartbeat, he goes from a dude in an obscure town that no one really pays attention to with four followers to amassing hordes of followers. He says, you going to follow me? Awesome. Watch this. And in a second, the world is chasing after him, and he has not broken a sweat. It's so cool, the sequence of the story here, because the disciples did not know what was going to happen next when they said yes to the invitation, the invitation that was really a command to follow me. They didn't know what was going to happen after they said yes, but Jesus follow me leads to this watch this moment, and they had a front row seat for the whole thing. It seems to me that watch this always follows a yes to the invitation of Jesus follow me. A wholehearted I'm in to the invitation of Jesus always follows this kind of unexpected, miraculous work that God wants to do in you and through you and for you. And saying yes to Jesus in earnest, not in principle, not because your parents want you to, not because you're in seventh grade and it's time for confirmation... But saying yes to Jesus in earnest puts you in a position where faith is required and where faith is possible, where you feel the cost of his invitation. It's saying yes to an uncertain future. But it's also saying yes to a lifetime of watch this moments. We could probably pass the mic and we're going to do it on the last Sunday of this year, asking people like, like, what has God done in your life? And things that some of God has done in some of our lives is truly miraculous. The transformation, the encouragement, the friendship, the miracles that have happened in many of our lives. When we say yes to Jesus, we put ourselves in a position where faith is possible. And we put ourselves in a position where we can have a front row seat to those watch this moments. Saying yes to Jesus puts you in a position where faith is required. It also requires this spirit of adventure. And there's this kind of joy that only the adventurous will experience. If, if some of you were in apprentice groups last year, and, and James Bryan Smith quotes Augustine saying, There's a good that only the good know. There's a joy. There's a freedom. There's a life that only those of us who ventured into a life of adventure with Jesus will truly enjoy. There's a joy that won't be experienced until you've gotten on the other side of that severance and that sacrifice. Jesus says at the very beginning of his ministry, before he's shown what he can do and what he's going to do, repent, reconsider in light of this new reality that the kingdom of God is at hand. What are you going to do? Jesus is immediately divisive. I was going to quote it... uh, earlier, but from Matthew 10, Jesus says, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to turn mother against daughter and mother-in-law against son-in-law and father against child, husband against wife. No, don't suppose that I've come to bring peace to the world, but a sword. He's recognizing with this hyperbolic language, he's he's a deeply divisive figure because standing in front of the presence of Jesus, you decide, are you in or are you out? For the disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, their, their gut response, they immediately severed themselves from their present and their past, and they embraced an uncertain but a redefined future, and they followed him. In a couple of weeks, we're going to read the story on on September 8th of another person who is given the same invitation by Jesus, go, sell all you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. But rather than following him and tasting that joy, he walked away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus is present with us today. Jesus is ruling as the king over all the earth. Jesus will return uh, to to judge the living and the dead. Jesus will prove to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords over all of the earth. And for the next two months as a church, we're going to lock eyes with him in our study of the gospel. And all of us have to make this gut response like the disciples did. Are you in or are you out? Where are you with him? And if you pose the question to yourself, are you in or are you out? like Just like that, what would you say? Where do you land? I would guess that in this room there are people who have perhaps grown up religious or didn't grow up religious but have been coming to church for a while and you feel like by osmosis you've kind of generally joined the crowd. But there was never a moment for you where you of your own volition exercised your will and said, I'm in, I'm going to do this. Are there people in the room who you did it in like 1999 at New Life Ranch or at Falls Creek, and you've been riding that wave since then. There's an invitation for us in the, in the months to come as a church where we lock eyes with the person of Jesus, where we can say, I'm in. Immediately, they said, yes. They severed themselves from their past allegiances, their past loves, their past priorities, past reality, and entered into the the realm of possibility, following him with a spirit of adventure, having the opportunity to know the good grief that those who follow Jesus will experience in this lifetime, but also the joy that's only available to the adventurous and to those who say yes. Church, what I urge you to do is, is to take this seriously. I urge you to resolve to follow Jesus. I urge you to resolve within yourself to have an unambiguous answer to his question and to resolve to follow Jesus. I have no idea what that will cost you. In the next couple of months, we're gonna read the Gospels every day, every Sunday, I'm gonna preach in the Gospels and all I'm asking you to do is in, is in answering that question and in resolving to follow Jesus that you'll say for the next two months, I'm going to throw myself headlong into the study of the person of Jesus. And every day when you're reading, I want you to just ask the question, what do you want me to do? And there's going to come a moment when you're reading and you know, you know that he's saying, do this. And I urge you to practice instantaneous obedience. There's going to come a moment of fear and panic where you thought, oh, crap, this is getting real. And that's the moment where faith is required for you. That's the moment where it's time to embrace the spirit of adventure and think, oh, gosh, this could go so poorly, but I'm going to do it. I urge you in a new way, whether it's for the first time or the 50th time, to resolve to follow Jesus. And we want to be a community of people that resolves to follow Jesus together. Doesn't just embrace bourgeois respectability and be polite, middle-class people, but a group of people who are bent on following Jesus no matter what comes. Why else would you come to church? This is what we hope for. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are at a severe disadvantage from Peter and Andrew and James and John because you are not physically staring us in the eyes. And we all feel like if you walked up to us and put a hand on your shoulder and said, leave the accounting world, leave oil and gas, leave HR, leave your version of the nets and follow me, we sure like to think that we would say, heck yeah. But Jesus, you are present with us here today. Many of us can experience these moments where we've been reading the Gospels, where we've been praying, and it has felt like a divine confrontation when suddenly our loyalties are pinned up against you and we have to make a decision for ourselves. Are you in or are you out? I pray, Lord Jesus, that by your Spirit you would convict us, that you deeply disturb us and make us uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. For those of us who, who our gut answers that I'm not in or I'm not ready, I pray for deep discomfort. And for those of us who've grown so comfortable in our faith and we're resting on the laurels of past opportunity, past times we've said yes and we feel like we're good to go, that you disturb us and make us dis- uncomfortable too, Lord Jesus. That you give us deep conviction about the invitation to sever ourselves from our, our preferred loyalties and allegiances and love and give us a vision of ourselves in following you. I pray that you'd you'd speak truth to the lie that makes all this feel like a burdensome, legalistic invitation, a works righteousness kind of thing, but see this response of severance and immediate obedience as a response to your grace. God, pour out your spirit on your church. Help us to see Jesus like we've never seen him. Help us to know Jesus like we've never known him. Help us to encounter Jesus, not just as individuals, but as a church and in doing so to be like a city shining on a hill, to stand out like salt and light in the world. This is not something we can conjure on our own, Lord Jesus, to pray by your spirit that you'd come. And as we come to the table and we share the bread and the juice, I pray that you'd quicken our minds and quicken our hearts and confront us and invite us into the life of adventure of following you. If it begins with follow me and is sustained by a life of watch this. Come, Lord Jesus.